Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Anna. Welcome to this special uh, bonus edition of the Mighty Littles Podcast. This morning I did an Instagram Live with Savannah. She is a mom of three kids, all of whom were born prematurely, including 24-week twins. We decided to do an Instagram Live to talk about how we go about making decisions for our families and our kids balancing the risks of exposure to COVID and the risks of exposure for our uh, kind of higher risk kids with really that need for social development and social interaction with people and how important that is for our kids. I decided to record the Instagram live and put it out as a podcast in case There's listeners here that aren't following me on Instagram. If you are enjoying our podcast, please get onto Apple Podcasts and rate and review so that other people can find us. It really does make a huge difference when people are searching for NICU or parenting for us to have more reviews uh, and more ratings because then more people can find us. I hope you really enjoy the information that's provided in this podcast, and we will be back next week with another parent interview. Hey everybody, thanks for the waves. Oh, you're here. Hi, good afternoon. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm, I was trying to get a little tripod thing set up, but it's not cooperating, so I might just hold it. Yeah, well, that's what I was trying to do, and I'm just holding it too because I couldn't get it to turn the right direction. I'm still kind of new with the, uh, with the technology, but I am, I am trying to figure it out, so it's all new for me. Me too. We'll learn together. Okay, perfect. Well, you know, I really wanted to get on and do something about what do we do with all this information coming at us about COVID and particularly for people that have young kids or ex-preemies or kids that may be considered higher risk. How do we filter through all the data that's coming out of it? And how do we kind of make decisions for our own family? So for people that don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself quick to people that are here on Mighty Littles and we'll go from there. Okay. So my name's Savannah and I, my page on here is the smallest fight and I have three children. All were preemies. My daughter was a 36 weeker and my twins came at 24 weeks. And for anyone who has micro preemies, they know that there's a lot of ups and downs that come with the a micro preemie Nick you stay. And um, I'm so happy to say they're going to be three in a couple weeks here. And um, but uh, as you know, the micro preemie and uh, that preemie journey does not stop at discharge. And so I've learned a lot. And I've shared our story on here and made great connections with other mothers and families who have gone through similar things or are, are starting their NICU journey. Yeah, awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. You had put a post um, on your account just kind of about decisions you guys were making about COVID-19. So I thought I would just kind of give a rundown of kind of where we're at, and then we can open up the discussion for things that you guys have done. So from my standpoint, COVID is real, and I know some people really are non-COVID believers, and clearly my page is not going to be your page. Your, your best bet for information if you are one of those people. I work in a NICU, my son had it. I totally believe that COVID is real. At the same time, I really think that um, intentional social connection is really, really important 
for kids while they're growing up. And whether that's grandparents or friends or school, it really depends on who the child is and what age they are, what that social development really is going to look like. Um, and putting our lives on perpetual hold for this virus when multiple other viruses may come down the line is going to be really, really difficult. And we need to find really practical solutions to keep our kids safe that work for our family, not for everybody's family. Okay. We're talking about for our family. Um, and those can be different for every single family that's out there. So tell me a little bit about kind of what you guys ended up deciding for your family in terms of how you want to social distance and how much interaction you guys want to have. So uh, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of backtracking to right when we left the NICU, which was almost, you know, two and a half years ago. And at that point, it was very important to set rules to protect our, our babies because they were so immunocompromised and we had no clue. Um, they were also discharged in October, so we were coming into cold and flu season. So we set very clear rules at that time, which um, we basically didn't take them anywhere other than doctor's appointments. Any visitors came over, it was, do you have any symptoms? Um, when you come over, you're scrubbing in like a NICU, wash your hands, two minute, three minute thing and hand sanitizing, no kissing. Um, and so we set those rules, which I think is the number one most important thing. So um, coming into all this, our daughter is in pre, or she just completed pre, her last year of preschool. And as soon as the coronavirus started to get scary in our area, and we're in Washington state, um, which was March, we pulled her out of preschool um, just to protect the twins. Uh, to mainly protect them. And so it was very reminiscent of going back to being discharged from the NICU. And so uh, we have been listening and reading everything about this and trying to best um, protect our family. So again, we set rules. They were, at, they were about as tight, if not tighter than when we left the NICU. So we had no visitors. We took precautions when we go to public places and limited all sorts of um, interaction. So I think a lot of preemie moms have said something very similar, which is, you know, ask any preemie mom about social distancing. And we've been doing it for, for years because that's what we tell preemies when they go home. I always tell my parents, hey guys, you're not under house arrest, right? It kind of feels like you are, but you're not under house arrest. You can go out, you can take a walk in the park, you can walk around your neighborhood. Mom and dad can go to the store and then just be very careful about hand washing when you come home, but don't take your kids with you. And I think COVID has a lot of those same precautions that are really important for the preemie population that kind of extend into COVID, particularly as we know more and more about this virus. You know, it used to be, well, kids don't get it. Well, we know that kids do get it. They just typically have a little bit less of a severe course. They used to say, well, kids are really asymptomatic carriers and kids can spread it everywhere. And there's some new stuff that's coming out that shows that that's not necessarily as true as what we thought. Um, 
there's a website that I like called explaincovid.org. So it's COVID explained, but it's the website is explaincovid.org. And they're trying to collect data as kids are going back to summer camp and back to schools and say, hey, these are what the actual numbers are. So let me read you guys a couple of these numbers. Um, so out of 970 daycare locations, they had 27,000 students. Of those 27,000 students, 42 were positive. So that's a rate of 0.15%. And then, you know, I think another one of the big questions is what about the adults that are taking care of those kids? The kids don't get sick, but the adults do. So for those 970 locations and 27,000 kids, there were 9,500 staff, so almost 10,000 staff, and 106 of them were positive, so a rate of about 1%. So I think that notion that kids are just going to spread it to everybody is probably not true. Um, and the notion that it's all on all the surfaces is probably not true either. They're really now coming out and saying that COVID is spread through close contact, less than six feet, for more than 15 minutes, with symptomatic carriers. And I think that if you keep that in mind, it's close contact, less than six feet for 15 minutes with symptomatic people, it can make you feel a little bit more comfortable about what you're choosing and who you're choosing to interact with in your life. One of the things um, that people always ask me is how long do we consider our preemies to be at higher risk? You know, so a preemie that goes home and is two months old and is still on oxygen, is that mm -hmm. baby higher risk? Yes, absolutely. A preemie that went home that was never on oxygen, who's now in kindergarten, is that kid at higher risk? Yeah, probably not. But what about that more middle ground, right? So you've got kids that had chronic lung disease that are still less than two years old. I would put those kids in the higher risk category. Any baby that was on oxygen at discharge, I consider higher risk until they're at least two years old and have been off of oxygen for a year, okay? Those would be my kind of categories. So your boys, did they come home on oxygen? They did. Um, so uh, they were on oxygen for a few months after discharge and um and then came off and so once we it, it became closer to summer we were getting more um interested in doing more and being social so we started to to get out there a little bit more and we had a great we everyone was very healthy for that first year um when it came to the school year we ended up putting our daughter in um like preschool daycare that following year so they had so they had been home a year a little over a year and when they were about 18 months old um they my daughter ended up bringing home rsv and giving it to the boys and so what you were just talking about really spoke to me and from firsthand experience i was naive about how compromised they still were at that point because they were doing so well. Um, I wouldn't have done anything differently because I didn't know any better and we learned from it, but they both ended up getting, um, being admitted and it was a month on and off in the hospital 
because of their, their immune systems were still affected. So that really put us in check and we kind of tightened things again. Yeah, and I, I think that's really common once you kind of, you see your kids are doing well and they're weaning off the oxygen and you kind of feel like, oh, they've come off their oxygen, we're home free, we're doing okay. Um, and put her on oxygen. So, uh, hang on one second. My 26-weeker yeah. came home without oxygen, but bouts with RSV put her on oxygen at 12 months. She's weaned from 24702 in March. How long is she considered high risk? So that question came in from And She Shall Rain. And that's kind of exactly what we're talking about is kids that have had oxygen needs, I would consider them to be at higher risk for a minimum of two years of, of life. So, at, you know, 24 months old corrected age, and they need to have been off of oxygen for at least 12 months. So if she came off of oxygen from March, I would really consider her high risk all the way from then through this summer season, through this fall season, and through next spring's RSV season. I would still consider that child at high risk for at least a year after coming off of oxygen. Because even though they look really good and they're off of oxygen, they still are not 100%. They're still a little bit compromised. And it, all it takes is a, a virus to kind of tip them over the edge. Um, so that would be my answer to that high risk question, at least a year off of oxygen and for the first two years of life. So I kind of have a question based on everything you just said. Um, sure. As far as uh, babies' lungs being underdeveloped and requiring more oxygen and having chronic lung disease, what is it, what is it? physically going on with the lungs or the um that makes it harder for them to you know deal with any kind of viruses respiratory viruses yeah so that's a, actually a phenomenal question so the up to age two portion of it comes from just simply looking at the diameter of their airways as you grow bigger your airways get bigger and so when you have mucus or crap that's down in your lungs that's going to plug it up it doesn't plug up the entire diameter of the airway. If your airway is this big, like an adult, it takes a whole lot more mucus to plug it up than if your airway is this big, like in a child. So part of it is just um, a technical issue with the size of your airways. And I don't mean your airway up here, I mean all the tiny airways that are all the way throughout your lungs. Um, so that's part of it. The other technical thing is just body mass. You can produce a stronger cough and move that mucus out as you are older and bigger and you have more muscle mass. So that's kind of that two-year range. But specific to preemies or kids that have underlying preemie lung disease, this is going to be different for like asthmatics. Preemies have scarring of their lungs that can cause the oxygen to not move across quite as well. And as they grow older, they grow new lung tissue. And with that growing of the new lung tissue, they get more and more of those tiny little sacs at the bottom of the airway that allow them air to move even more. So that's why time, good nutrition mm. and growth are really our friends when we're talking about preemie babies and the lung disease that they have is because you're waiting for them to grow new lung tissue. That new lung tissue that they're growing is healthy. They're not on a vent. They're not on positive pressure. They're growing new healthy lung tissue. So okay. it's kind of a combination of all of that. Okay. Interesting. Did that, did that answer your question? Yeah, that, that, that definitely did. Um, the other thing I know that you, uh, COVID-19 went through your house and I yes. think that's when I first really started following and I was just like crushed 
because of what we keep hearing, oh, it's not affecting kids. And then to see that, um, has that experience changed your perspective on anything? Uh, or, or from the mama side or the medical professional from the mom side? side? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, yes and no. I think I had a healthy respect for coronavirus as I was watching it kind of go through China and go into Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had even more respect for it when Lincoln was in the hospital. To be quite honest, it scared the ever-living crap out of me. Yeah. I mean, he was really very sick and on a lot of support and didn't end up getting intubated, did not go on a ventilator, but was pretty close to mm-hmm. it. Um, and so in that way, I, I really do respect it more. At the same time, the flip is true as well, right? So Lincoln got sick and he did get very sick, but he also recovered from it. Mm-hmm. And I watched my kids through April and May where we did nothing other than stay at home and they were at each other's throats and they were dumping slime on my carpet and they've never dumped slime on my carpet before, right? Like they just needed more interaction with kids. And so I really started thinking more about that social interaction dynamic of how do we keep our kids being kids Mm -hmm. where they're supposed to play and be at camp and be in school and interact with other kids and not be contained away from the world wearing a mask at all times like how do you learn about communicating with people when you can't see their facial expressions do you know if i'm smiling do you know if i'm frowning i mean granted i have a crack in the center of my forehead so lots of people know what i'm thinking but Mm -hmm. but otherwise no you like you they're still in this time span where they're trying to learn from all of that and so keeping them from that really is going to delay our children. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of, I kind of have both ends of it, right? Like I really, I really have respect for COVID and I really feel strongly that kids should have social interaction and be able to do the normal things that kids do. Mm -hmm. Um, The American Academy of Pediatrics, which is kind of the group that I'm a part of as a neonatologist and pediatrician, just put out a position statement in defense of children going back to school. Um, And they're talking about all those exact same things, right? Like, we don't think that the asymptomatic spread is as bad as we initially thought it was. Mm -hmm. Most children have really, really um, not severe cases, but how do we put measures in place to protect our kids as we're taking those things in mind? And I think there's some degree of social economics in this as well. They showed that families that have computers and iPads at home had no problem participating in online classes. And people that don't have those, do you we think COVID will become a season like RSV? I'll answer that in just a second. Um, so, people that don't have computers at home, those kids are falling even further behind. Um, And parents that can work from home can still make an income, but parents who can't work from home, now the income is less and kids aren't going to school and they can't get the lunch Mm -hmm. program at school. And so now you've got malnutrition that's contributing to other health problems as well. So it's kind of, I mean, everybody is trying to make the best decision that's possible. But for each individual person, those decisions are going to be different. Mm -hmm. The decisions that I make for my kids are going to be different based on who they are, how old they are, and the fact that we've already had COVID in our house versus somebody who lives next door to me who has a two-month-old 
they're going to make very different decisions in how, how they feel safe. And I think we need to remember that it's okay for all of us to be making individual decisions as long as we're thinking about what it means, not just for ourselves, but also for our neighbors. The 20-something-year-olds that are going to the bar and drinking and being in crowds of 100 people drive me crazy. Mm -hmm. They are not making decisions that are safe for anybody else other than themselves. Yeah, I've, uh, I've talked to a lot of other moms about this, um, and including my family, uh, my extended family. We've had a lot of very serious conversations about this for the, the mental health piece of it in this getting together as well as the health of our family, especially the twins. And I, I believe it all comes down to evaluation of risk and each family is going to have a different set of rules. But I think that that is a discussion every family needs to have um, and then have with people that are coming into your home so that they understand where you stand and you can kind of move forward um, making educated choices. Yeah, I think that's very true is for each individual family, you're, you're weighing your risks against your benefits based on the age of your kids and your family members. And your scale of weighing those risks and benefits is going to be very different than my scale. We all have our own scale. Mm -hmm. um, Christy asked if we think that COVID will become a season like RSV season that we need to watch for every year. And my honest answer is I, I really don't know yet. Um, so far, this has not been a seasonal virus. We are in the middle of summertime. It started in March. If it was going to die out like flu and RSV did, we should have seen cases be dying out during the, these summer months and cases are continuing to rise. When you look at the graphs, most of the states in the United States are going back up again as things start to open. But if we have more herd immunity and more people have gotten it, then could it be more seasonal when you're outside more and you're not in crowded places that you have less contact with other people so you have less spread? That's possible. We don't entirely know why influenza and RSV are completely seasonal. So it's impossible for me to say whether I think that COVID will be seasonal yet. It hasn't shown itself to be that way yet, but we don't have enough herd immunity to really know. Um, one of the other questions that I got uh, that somebody submitted over Instagram was, um, can grandma and grandpa hold if my baby is recently home from the NICU and still on oxygen? Um, and, that, and that again, that's a really good question. So I would say that a baby that's less than a year old and on oxygen is certainly at higher risk, even though we know that kids don't get really severe symptoms, I would put that kid in higher risk. We also know that the majority of people that are exposed to COVID and come down with symptoms will have symptoms within the first five to seven days. Oh, you're listening. Yay, I'm glad I'm answering your question while you're listening. Um, so there's a couple ways you can approach this. Obviously, really good hand washing and wearing a mask. They have to wash their hands when they walk in your house. They have to wear a mask if they have been someplace other than their home for the last seven days. You can choose what duration you wanna put on that, right? So yes, the incubation can be as long as 14 days, but the majority of people have symptoms between day four and day five. So to play it safe, you could say seven days. And then the grandparents can compromise partway and say, well, we're willing to social distance um, and we'll do our grocery shopping on Sunday 
and then we'll come to your house on the following Sunday. And now it's been an entire week. So if we were going to have symptoms, then we would have had it. I also think it's really different if the grandparents are social distancing by walking around their neighborhood, going and picking, picking up takeout, um, making a we weekly trip to Costco and washing their hands really well. Those are pretty safe things. If the grandparents are social distancing um, by going out to a bar or going to a backyard patio picnic thing with a hundred different people for the 4th of July, I would not consider that social distancing. And I'd probably put a little bit more strict regulations on, well, you were around a lot of people. Why don't we, um, you know, ha have you back off a little bit more? From my standpoint, if they haven't been around anybody for six or seven days and they have absolutely no symptoms, I think it's great for grandparents to come over and hold your babies, even with your babies on oxygen, provided they wash their hands. I probably would make them wear a mask. That's just me. I'm a neonatologist. I'm super cautious around babies. Um, but those are, those are the kinds of decisions that every family has to make for themselves. Um, and she shall rain just asked, is it possible for two year olds to get the RSV shot for an additional year? So that is a really good question. There's very stringent guidelines for the RSV shot. Essentially, the RSV vaccine synergis is uh, passive immunity. So it doesn't cause your body to mount an immune system response to RSV. It's taking other people's immune responses and giving you the protection against RSV. That's why you have to get the shot every 30 days. It only lasts in your body for 30 days. Because of that, it's extraordinarily expensive, upwards of $1,000 a dose. And so they really have tightened down on who we can give that shot to and who insurance will pay for it. But if your child is still on oxygen and is considered high risk, we can petition to get that covered. It just is more of a fight. Um, and I don't know, you know, everything is still too new with COVID for me to know how this is going to play out in terms of COVID immunity and, and things like that. Um, so I don't know if that will be something to consider with COVID as we move forward. My twins did not qualify for Synergis, their second cold and flu season. And I don't know that the result would have changed, but I wish I would have tried harder because they did get it and they were hospitalized. Yeah. So that's my only piece. Try, at least try. Yeah. Well, my um, older daughter, she was a term healthy baby, never had any problems whatsoever. Um, and we had just super bad luck at daycare. I mean, I work full time. My husband works full time. We put her in daycare yeah. and she actually got chicken pox at 10 months of age because somebody hadn't vaccinated the older children and came to pick up one of the infants in the infant room. And there were two infant rooms, both had 10 kids all 20 infants got chicken pox oh. within two weeks of, of that outbreak. So she got chicken pox. And then at 14 months, she got RSV. And she actually was hospitalized in the ICU with RSV for about four days. Um, and, and I think that highlights the fact that you just don't know yeah. what is going get to your, get your child, right? Like my healthy two-year or 14-month-old got RSV and was in the hospital. My twins got RSV because... Emmeline brought it home when they were seven months old and they were just fine. So, and, and I think COVID is the same way. Mm -hmm. It can be a really bad actor, but we don't know who it's going to be the bad actor for. And at the end of the day, 
it's your family, it's your decision. You make decisions that make you feel the most comfortable with what, you're, what risk you're willing to tolerate. Are you hearing uh, much evidence to support that um, people who have already had COVID are, um, are immune to getting it a second time? Is, that, is there any evidence on that yet? No. No, there's no evidence on that. And in fact, I would say the opposite is true. They are seeing that the antibody levels in people who have had COVID, um, either a mild case or had COVID several months ago, that their antibody levels are really, really low, uh, almost non-existent. And so it begs the question, does our body produce uh, immune response that is longstanding? I don't know that doesn't bode well, the fact that the antibody levels fall pretty quickly. And what does that mean in terms of a vaccine? Because the way a vaccine works is you give somebody either the killed virus or parts of the virus um, and your body you know, has an immune response to it. And then you have these immune levels that will stick around. And we haven't seen those immune levels sticking around. But if you think about most vaccines, you get them as a, as a series, right? So you get your two-month, your four-month, and you, your six-month shots. Because the first time your body sees something, it sees it and those levels drop. And then the second time and the third time your body sees it, you have more of a long-lasting immune response. And so maybe it just means that we need to get it more frequently. I can tell you from for my family who we all have had to have had it. My girls had no symptoms whatsoever. I had no symptoms. My husband was sick and Lincoln was obviously sick, but we live in the same house. We were baking cupcakes the night that he got his fever. Like there's no way we didn't all get it. We are not doing anything differently in terms of managing our risk as we would have if we hadn't all been exposed already. We're still wearing masks. We're still only grocery shopping once every 10 to 14 days. Um, we're still being very cautious. Now my kids are going back to their school for their little summer camp where there's 10 kids and one teacher and everybody wears a mask, but that's just a practical necessity for us with a two working parent mm -hmm. household and me working in the hospital. I can't work from home. so. But we, are, we, aren't, we aren't saying, oh, hey, we got it. Therefore, we should be better off. We're going to ease our restrictions. We're not doing that. Okay. I was reading recently um, how wearing a mask, less than it preventing you from contracting the virus, it's um, more so to make you aware of when you touch your face and yeah. that. So I was just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think it's really funny that the memes have come out with, um, oh, you know, if you wear, don't wear your pants and you pee, then you pee on yourself. And if you don't wear your pants and you pee on somebody else, then they, you pee on them. But if they're wearing pants, you pee on their pants. And, you know, those types of things, I, I find them very amusing. And I think it's very similar for, for COVID, right? There's good slides that are out there if you Google it on the internet. Um, then that, um, Jen, I saw your question. I'll answer it in just one second. Um, that when you sneeze, if you sneeze and you're wearing a mask, the Petri dish grows way less than if you sneeze and you aren't wearing a mask. And they did it with like talking, singing, sneezing, all those kinds of things. Um, I think that the 
it's the masks are very interesting. I touch my face more when I have a mask on because it's irritating to me and it moves and it gets little feathers and flaky things inside of it and absolutely drives me crazy. But I always recognize exactly when I am touching my face because you are so conscious of it. So I do think that there is kind of just a tactile reminder in the wearing of a face mask to help you remember to wash your hands. That can be helpful. Um, but it also really does help prevent you spreading it if you are coughing and you don't know that you have it. Um, I think that's, and the, uh, I don't remember what data I was looking at, but you know, it showed if 80% of people wore a mask 80% of the time that our numbers would just plummet because that it, it is a barrier. It's a, it's a reminder to wash your hands. It's a barrier for droplets. You're not spreading it to somebody else. And if you happen to walk past a single droplet, you're not getting it into your, into your mouth to spread. Um, okay, so Jen asks, if you could work from home, would I keep my kiddos at home? Well, isn't that just a loaded question? You know, that kind of really goes back to um, that social development piece of it, where I feel so strongly that kids need to be kids. When we put my kids back in camp, in their camps this summer, they were totally different kids. Um, they didn't fight with each other. They were happy. They had things to talk about. They were exhausted at the end of the day and fell asleep easier. And one could argue that's because I'm a terrible mom um, and I just didn't give them enough to do. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. I don't think I'm a terrible mom. I think they need more stimulation and more play with other kids. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And so if I had a place where I felt like they were safe, which I do, I would still send them, which is evidence from me sending them to their camps this summer. Um, if I, I went back to work um, even before camps were there um, and we hired a nanny, so I would have just kept, kept going with a nanny. Um, but I really felt strongly that they needed to go back. So, I mean, I would send them back to school, but that does not mean that that's what you have to do, right? Everybody makes their own decisions based on what they're most comfortable with. Um, okay, another question. Uh, do you think the MMR vaccine gives kids some antibodies to protect them from COVID? I honestly don't know. I would be surprised. I know there, that people are talking about if you've had other things. If anything, coronaviruses are more similar to some other viruses. And if there is some cross-reactivity um, with like an enterovirus um, or a rhinovirus, uh, could any of the vaccines that our kids get or any preceding illness that our kids got kind of offer them some protection against COVID? Yes, possibly but I haven't seen any specific data telling me that if you've had a recent MMR vaccine that you're gonna do better if you get COVID. Nobody's been able to show me any data for that. This morning I heard somebody um, putting a, a big push for encouraging families to get the flu vaccine um, next cold and flu season. So it can better help medical professionals rule out whether it's influenza or COVID. Have you heard anything like that? 
so I haven't heard anything about that. I, I guess I have a couple comments to that. Mm -hmm. um, the flu vaccine is kind of a combination of all different types of influenza. So influenza has tons of different strains. And when they make the flu vaccine, they kind of make their best guess as to what the most common strains appear that they're gonna be coming for the year. Um, so even though you get the flu vaccine, it doesn't necessarily protect you against all the flus that are going around. Um, additionally, so you can get the flu vaccine and still get influenza. So I don't know that it helps doctors try to tease out whether you have COVID or you have influenza. But what I can say is that there is a vaccine for the flu. And if more people got their flu vaccine, you'd have less people hospitalized with influenza potentially, which then would open up more beds and we wouldn't have a um, a bottleneck for bed spaces um, when COVID starts to or continues to uh, vamp up. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know that it really would help physicians know whether or not yeah, you got the flu, but sense. it certainly would mean less people would get hospitalized with influenza, opening up more beds for people to be cared for with COVID. Um, I, I think it's also interesting, you know, um, there's such a discrepancy in what is happening with this coronavirus crisis, whether you're in a big city or you're in a suburb or you're in a really small town. And so more populated places are being hit harder. In Houston, um, Texas, you know, New York was hit really hard. They had were really quarantined down. Their cases have come down. They really haven't opened back up yet. So you haven't seen the cases started to come, come up. Texas opened up really early, and now a coworker of mine had nine positive moms and three positive babies in the NICU in their unit two days ago. So it is hitting moms and babies in the NICU, and they've taken over some children's hospital beds to care for adults with coronavirus. Um, and so if that is an indicator, we are going to end up with a shortage of these critical care beds. And if it does hit these smaller communities that have small hospitals that are really just critical access hospitals, those hospitals aren't, are going to get overwhelmed as well. And so getting the influenza shot for me is more about not um, overwhelming the hospital system than it is about anything else. Um, okay. Somebody just put in a question. My son is four, immunocompromised, was born at 26 weeks and get, gets asthma attacks as a result of major flu. In your view, is social at daycare more important than staying home come September? I wouldn't say so. Um, you clearly have a child that reacts really significantly anytime they get a viral illness. And I always think that kids' safety is more important. It's just impossible for me to know exactly how much more risk is your child at because of coronavirus versus just all the other flus and RSVs that are out there. And how, at the age of four, you're not missing anything by hanging out at home, um, right? You're not missing any schooling. You can, you can do that. And kids' safety is always going to be more important than, than, than the schooling is how I would respond to that. What other questions did you think of for me? 
Um, <laughs> if you don't have, any I think you <laughs> answered a lot of it. I think this ongoing conversation is the has is the best way. Um, yeah, you're answering a lot. It's there's just so much, so much unknown, and it's so much con uh, con conflicting information. I I heard a quote in reading one article that said, "If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail," and I think that's so true depending on who you talk to. And so I try to look at all of it with the most open mind and know that the truth is somewhere in the middle. And yeah. we, and in our situation um, or other former NICU babies, we, we can't risk, risk pretending like it's fake, you know, we just can't. Right. So we're yeah. doing everything we can uh, to protect them. And um, so far, so good. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's true for all of this, right? Like I said um, earlier, if somebody tells you that they know everything there is to know about coronavirus, they're lying because <laughs> yes. nobody knows yes. everything there is to know about coronavirus right now. Um, there's just, it's not black and white. There's so much gray. And ultimately, again, it's your child and your life. I was going to ask a similar question. Hang on one second. Mm -hmm. um, my daughter has severe expressive speech delay and she's due to start a two-year-old school. She's an only child and desperately needs social interaction, but I fear it's not worth her health. I, I, I hear you. Uh, I know exactly what you're, what you're trying to make decisions about. And I think that fall is still three months away and think about all of the things that we've learned between March and now, how it's spread, how different the information we're talking about now is compared to the, the information we were talking about in March. So don't underestimate how much more information will be gained between now and September when she would be due to start. I think there's some other wiggle room area, right? Like um, mm -hmm. trying to, it, it takes a lot more work on the part of parents mm -hmm. to try to reach out and find another two-year-old who you want your child to play with, whose family is also social distancing, mm -hmm. who you feel a little bit more comfortable with having them into your home or your daughter going to their home or uh, a home daycare where the person's only taking three children of people who promised a social distance, right? Like you can mitigate your risks depending on some of the decisions that you make. Clearly, that's way more work. Clearly, you're not going to get all the benefit of the school system and the speech development that they would be doing. But you could potentially augment that with just the private speech therapy that they can provide outside of school. And I can't, I can't even be educated in answering that question hugely because I don't know what state you're in or exactly what the resources are. But sometimes we can try to be a little bit more creative and think outside the box for ways that we can get our kids what they need without going through the traditional kind of pathways. Our birth to three program here in Washington state, they would come to our house for therapies. And so I don't know, like you said, where this person is, but that was really, really helpful for us when our boys had just come home from the NICU because we weren't comfortable really taking them in for therapies. Right. Um, and then the, the other thing um, I keep talking about establishing rules but I literally had to write down the rules of what we're comfortable with and what we're not, and then share them with the, our next layer of um, family and friends. And we told them, this is how we're acting. These are the things that we're comfortable with. This is what we're not comfortable with. If you are doing something, you know, that's um, not within these guidelines, we want five to seven days before you come over. 
And right. so that's what we've done. And then what is what I like about this is now um, we have certain families who are doing the same. And so now we can get together with them and it's a lower risk situation, but we can still get the social interaction for our children. Right. And, and I think that's huge. And I, and I think you're also saying, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're comfortable with. And in no way, shape or form are you telling anybody yes. else what they have to do. Yes. And I think when we're having these conversations, it gets really difficult because you have to do what makes you comfortable. And that's not going to be the same for everybody. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And we need to respect each other's choices. Mm -hmm. Being in the NICU, having ex-preemies, having kids with asthma, even my son, I would put him in a high-risk category, right? Like right. he was hospitalized. He was on a lot of oxygen. I would consider him high-risk for a while. Is that a year? Or is it six months? I don't know. For sure through the next cold and flu season coming up this winter, just so that I feel more comfortable. I want to treat him as high risk. And I get to make those choices. He's my son. You guys get to make your choices for your kids. And everybody else can do what they want. And then you just have put rules in place. And feel free to blame it on the, uh, you know, redheaded doctor that's on, on Instagram. <laughs> that yeah. redheaded doctor on Instagram said that you can't come over if you've been anywhere for five to seven days. I'm okay with that. They don't know yeah. Um, I'm more than fine. I'm more than fine. You can blame anything on me. <laughs> do you, do you do doctor's notes too? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but yeah, no, I think that, I think all that, all that is, is so great. Um, I, I know that there's a lot, the situations that I have, um, uncomfortable conversations with telling people they can't come over. I have always found that I spend more time worrying about all this unnecessary, this reaction they're going to have that they never have. Right. Pe people get it. They really do. And you will feel so much better. And um, the other thing is it's, it's the parent's job to protect the kids. And so you can't go into it assuming everyone is going to think about seeing your child on a ventilator and they aren't coming to your house with these images like you are. And, and just remember that they're, they just want to see your kids. They don't know what, where you stand. So you need to communicate it with them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's huge. We're having the, the same conversations with my parents. You know, my mom desperately wants to see our kids. My parents are both really high risk because of some underlying medical problems. And, you know, we have different places where we're at and mm -hmm. I'm kind of in the place of, well, you guys could drive out here and my kids aren't going to be in camp for these two weeks. If you're driving out here, we would have, you know, this much time. And they're at a place of, we don't want to leave our house. We don't want any unnecessary exposure. We just can't do it. And it's okay. I'm not mad. They're not mad. Uh, but we are having open conversations about, well, then how else can we have you interact with my kids from North Carolina? Um, how can we make that work? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I so appreciate you coming on and being willing to talk about this. I thought your um, comments that you made on your account about how you were having these hard conversations and the, you know, kind of decisions that you were making for your family were, was just really great. And I wanted other people to kind of hear a little bit about it. So I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we will talk again. Yeah, great. Okay. All right. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. You too. Okay, yep. bye. Bye-bye. Okay.
we are going to close it up there. Um, if you guys have more questions about COVID or coronavirus, um, I am going to um, actually put this out on the podcast. I have to figure out how to do that. That's that tech thing that I'm still working on. And then I'll also be putting it on um, the Mighty Littles webpage. Um, obviously, send me other questions that you have. I'll still be putting out um, answers and I'll do another question section on Wednesday. That'll kind of be every Wednesday on Mighty Little's Instagram. It's going to be kind of a Wednesday wisdom. Ask me your questions and I'll share it with, with people. And if I don't know the answer, I'll find somebody who does. But hopefully everybody uh, really enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed being online, talking to somebody else and seeing your guys' questions pop up. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We will see you next time. Bye. Keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.